the bedrock and surface deposits of Pennsylvania span over a billion years of geologic time. Pennsylvania literally rocks. Welcome to the PCPG podcast series. The Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists invites you to join us on a journey to explore the geology of the Keystone State and to meet the people who study it and work with it in their everyday lives. Good evening and welcome to the PCPG podcast. I'm your host, Russ Losco. Tonight, we are interviewing Craig Eckert, who has a fascinating book that is coming out uh, beginning of March. Let me give you a little bit of background on Craig. Craig is a retired petroleum geologist living with, with his wife near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology from West Virginia University, graduated in 1979, just a year or two before I did, uh, and some graduate uh, uh, courses in geology as well. He's worked for numerous companies in the exploration and production sector of the petroleum industry uh, while living in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Texas. Uh, His passion and expertise uh, were in combining geology and geophysics to accurately map the subsurface of the earth. Today, he is equally passionate about exploring the world on foot by long-distance hiking, as you will hear uh, here shortly. He has two grown children and three grandchildren an avid canoeist, avid skier and golfer. And as a lifelong geologist, he is forever fascinated by those rocks beneath his feet, wherever the trail leads. So with that, I would like to introduce Craig. Welcome, uh, Craig. Uh, Should I call you Craig or should we go by your trail name of Old (laughs) Oriskany? I think Craig is fine. Okay. uh, Good to be here, Russ. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you for, uh, for joining us. In, in your in your bio here, uh, it says you graduated in 1979. What led you to to want to be a geologist in the first place? Well, you know, I've always I've always loved rocks. Um, when I was a kid, uh, family vacations uh, were often up in New England, and we would stop at quarries, or we would be on the coast of Maine. And um, although my mom and dad may not have known it at the time, you know, I was really interested in all the rocks that were around me and, and, and that we were seeing. And I would often come back with one of those little um, rock sample identification charts with the little samples pasted all over it. Uh, and I had a whole collection of those at home. Uh, but when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I, I just check the business major box, not really having any idea even what that meant. <laughs> um, but lo and behold, my first, uh, my first semester, I took a geology intro course, and this was at Catawba College in North Carolina, where I went for two years before I transferred to WVU. And um, my first uh, geology class, and it was very early on in, in a class, I remember I thought, this is so interesting. This is going to be my major. And immediately I just changed my major and it was just geology ever since. And um, and, and then an interesting note, uh, we had two professors at um, Catawba and they decided they were going to leave and that there wouldn't be a major for geology after that. So I had a choice. I was either, I was either going to change majors and stay there or transfer somewhere where I could pursue geology. And so that's what I did. And that's what brought me to WVU. And, and it was probably a good thing because I I received probably a more appropriate um, and, and beneficial, useful 
uh, education there for the industry that I ended up going into. So that was a good thing. Good. But, uh, but yeah, my, my love for geology is it's been with me my whole life, I think, and hasn't shown any signs of, of waning. <laughs> it is a, amazing. That it, uh, our field is one that very few people start out in. Mm -hmm. uh, most people transfer into it. To this day, I teach intro level courses uh, and, uh, you know, usually around week three, week four is when they start, you know, showing up early for class and going, are there jobs in this field? <laughs> <laughs> right. So your book, which is coming out, it's entitled Rocks, Roots and Rattlesnakes, a very appropriate title, uh, about your uh, through hiking of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, which is impressive at, at any age and at our age, uh, even more so. Uh, so when did you decide uh, that you were going to do this, uh, both hiking the trail and uh, uh, later on writing the book? I'm writing the book, yeah. Well, I, uh, I actually started out thinking that I might want to do, so after I retired in 2017, I had a lot, obviously a lot more time on my hands than I, than I did when I was working, Full time, and so I started thinking about some of the things that I had always wanted to do, and one of them was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I didn't actually start out in 2020 to do the whole thing. I was just going to maybe hike the first three states, which was under 500 miles, but still, that was a lot more than I had ever backpacked in my life, uh, far more. And um, when I was younger, I had friends who were uh, um, in my church group, and four of them actually hiked the Appalachian Trail uh, when we were 16 or 17 years old, I guess. And I always kind of regretted not going along with them. And uh, so this was something that's, you know, been on my mind for a really long time. And so I started out on, on my trek um, in June of 2020 after, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy to officially say the trail is open and hikers, you know, can return and so forth. So I, I got a late start. You know, Georgia in June isn't the most pleasant place to be if you're going to be sweating like a dog hiking every day because <laughs> it's awful. It's pretty warm down there in June. Um, so yes. it's it's a later start than uh, than I had planned. But anyway, uh, I got about oh I don't know maybe a week into it and just decided. I'm I'm just going to do the whole thing. Why not? Here I am. And so I, I just continued for five and a half months uh, um, hiking, hiking the trail. And it was it was a great experience. And as far as the book, um, I, I didn't actually set out to write the book at the onset of my uh, my trail hike. Um, but I, I did keep uh, a trail journal every night. Um, I had a very regimented um, procedure, like every night I'd get um, in my tent and I would review the day, you know, with all the maps that I had. And, and I always had a plan, you know, where I wanted to end up that night and did I make it there? And if I didn't, how many more miles will I have to do tomorrow to make up for it and so forth? And then just sort of look at what the uh, schedule for the next day would be and plan out my day. And then, and then I would uh, write it. Um, a, a couple of pages of trail notes. And so I did that every day. And I ended up with three notebooks full of notes. And when I finished the trail, um, I thought, well, 
I really need to put this together into some kind of a permanent um, uh, book form or something. And, uh, and I had started thinking about writing a book about maybe halfway through talking to people about it and got a lot of encouragement from others because everybody thought it was a great idea. And I thought, well, okay, I've never done this before, but maybe I'll give it a try. So that was sort of what initiated that whole process. Great. Well, well, I'm very glad that you did. This is this is uh, an excellent book, an excellent contribution. Uh, you know, makes makes me want to dust my boots off and get out on the trail. Um, had you done many backpacking trips before this? Not a lot. Um, certainly nothing of this magnitude. Um, I had done a lot of camping in my life, and uh, most of it, you know, quite honestly, was either you know scout camping for a weekend here and there or car camping, either with family or friends. Um, and uh, I, I think as far as backpacking long distances, maybe a week. And I don't even know if I even had a, a week long backpacking uh, trip when I was younger. That's, that's a, that's a long time. And, you know, it takes a lot of planning just to get out for a couple of days and, and make sure you've got everything you need and so forth. And, and I didn't really have the right kind of gear. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I talk a lot about this with other folks and all the ultralight equipment that is used um, by everyone. It's all made from oil. And um, when we used to uh, backpack as scouts, um, and if you were a scout, you might remember this. I mean, everything was canvas, wood, cotton. And if it got wet, <laughs> you, you could double the weight. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's it's really a miracle of uh, you know modern materials that uh, come from the petrochemical industry that uh, allow for all these backpackers to you know go for days and weeks on end without uh, having to worry so much about the weight of all of their equipment. Interesting. Um, and, and a very good point there. It, it, it would be hard, I'm sure, on a, on a trip like this to pick out a, a single most memorable experience, but uh, can you share with us some of your more memorable experiences on your hike? Oh, sure. Um, I, I guess if, if I had to pick one day that was perhaps the most memorable, it would have been um, in October coming coming down through New England in the White Mountains. Um, the Whites are uh, beautiful mountains. They're really rugged. Uh, much of them is above tree line. Um, you know, there's mountains just as high in North Carolina and Tennessee, but because of the latitude, of course, you don't, you don't have the, the alpine environment, right, in North Carolina, like you do in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. So anyway, I was um, I was in the White Mountains, and it was about our maybe our third or fourth day in, and um, the weather was looking like it was going to be stormy, and we weren't quite sure what that meant. But um, it was already raining. I remember that the evening before. Uh, we were going to do the Franconia Ridge. And the Franconia Ridge involves a series of peaks, uh, the first of which is uh, Mount Lafayette. 
and then I believe it goes on to Lincoln and uh, Haystack and a few others. But anyway, uh, getting uh, getting up that morning, it had rained the whole night, and we actually stayed in the shelter that evening. And it was um, you know cold, windy rain all night, so we really appreciated being able to stay warm. And I say we; it was uh, myself and uh, three other hikers. And when we came out the next morning, uh, me and one other guy, uh, we went made our way up to um, the the alpine zone where you know there's essentially your above tree line at that point. And when we when we hit that alpine zone, it was it was like a whole nother world. It was like sixty mile an hour winds. It was a complete whiteout. Um, ice and snow blowing sideways and then nothing but rock ahead of us. And all that rock was covered in a sheet of ice. So Ooh. yeah, to make a long story short, it, it took the whole day to get up and over Lafayette and the other peaks and then down finally into the next notch um, where we were able to stay um, uh, camp for the night. But, uh, but that was probably the most memorable of all the days because I actually wondered there were there were a couple of moments being on top of that mountain where I wondered if I was really going to make it because uh, my buddy his name was uh, Fenway he he was already he was a younger guy and he was he was gone he didn't he wasn't quite as slow and tedious and, and timid about making making his way over these slippery rocks as I was so uh, so I was by myself for. Oh, about three hours that morning and uh, wasn't quite sure if I was going to make it or if I was going to have to go back down the way I came or or what, but it was a little touch and go. And so that was probably my most memorable day. But, uh, but, but you know, every, every day was something new. And um, uh, I love the, uh, the bulbs of North Carolina. Um, there, when you pass the Smokies going north, there are a series of uh, the trail crosses um, a series of of these beautiful uh, treeless mountains, and they're not treeless because of you know the altitude, such as you have in in the Whites, for example. But rather, it was uh, thought that maybe uh, lightning strikes, you know, over thousands of years, or maybe. The Native Americans uh, may have cleared them for agriculture at some point. Um, there's a lot of debate as to why the why the balls are there, but anyway, the result is um, you have these beautiful trails that follow ridge lines uh, where there's no trees and just nothing but you know grasses and uh, boulders strewn here and there, and it's just um, it's just a, a beautiful part of the trail. So. Um, that went on for many, many days. So, uh, that's, that's one of, one of my favorite parts of the trail. And then I, I, I suppose parts of Maine and New Hampshire would be right up there as well. Hmm. Yeah. That experience on Mount Lafayette, uh, uh, brought back some memories of, of a day backpacking in freezing rain and being so mm-hmm. tired. I wanted to stop and take the pack off. And then I realized you know, if I take it off, this is where they're going to find my body. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
So in, in what is now my second favorite book on the Appalachian Trail, uh, Bill Bryson's uh, A Walk in the Woods, he describes the Pennsylvania section of the Appalachian Trail as the place that boots go to die. Was this your experience? Well, certainly uh, much of the trail does follow um, the Tuscarora sandstone or the Shawangunk, as it's known further to the east. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's an orthocortsite. It's, it's a silica cemented sandstone, very tough, uh, very resistant, um, great ridgeline former, uh, ridgeline forming unit. And um, the ironic thing is that um, I, I think, I think those types of rocks, those uh, orthocortsitic sandstones or or the quartzites, for example, of uh, of the Weaverton, which is you know part of the uh, basement complex in the Blue Ridge. Um, and anytime you encounter these these quartzites, I mean, they are just there's there's no rock that's going to be any tougher than that. I mean, the granites aren't as tough because the granites contain in any of the igneous and metamorphics, when I say granites, I mean really any of the igneous and, met and metamorphics, because they all contain um, crystals of various hardnesses and um, weathering characteristics. Whereas these orthoquartzites and quartzites, I mean, it's all silica, it's all number seven on the Mohs hardness scale, right? And the only thing above that are much less abundant minerals that you might you may find time to time, but they don't make up the primary constituents of any of any rock that you're going to be walking on on the trail. So, really, those um, those orthoport sites along the Pennsylvania part of the trail they they are really tough. And and then to go along with that, there are uh, you know many places where there's rivers of rocks um, and either the glacial or paraglacial activity has you know resulted in these rocks being you know, strewn about for miles along the trail. And, um, and they, it's, it makes for some rather interesting uh, hiking um, through, through, you know, the heart of Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really given it that much thought, but that makes sense that the, you know, the, the quartzites would, to, would chew up the boots faster than anything else. Uh, oh, absolutely. That much yeah. silica. Um, yeah, and by the way, I, I went through um, four sets of hiking shoes from start to finish, and, um, and it's about what I had been told um, to expect. Um, it's about 2,200 miles, and um, I got a little over 500 miles out of each one, five or 600 miles out of each, each pair. Uh, some of them I took a little longer, uh, but only because I, I didn't have access to a sporting good store where I could get another pair and I was in dire need of them for a, a couple hundred miles beyond their their real life but um yeah typically these the vibram soles on on the type of hiking boots that I wore which were Merrell's and I, I love them I'd uh, recommend to anyone uh yeah they're they're good for five or six hundred miles and then you need to get retreads or or a new pair <laughs> 
part of your answer to my last question kind of uh, answers part of what my next question was going to be. I was going to ask if your knowledge as a geologist gave you any kind of advantage on, on your trek. Um, it certainly gave you some insights into what was, what was going on underneath your feet. Um, right. Do you feel that it gave you any kind of advantage to the, to the lay people? So I, I don't know if it gave me as much of an advantage as it did just a better appreciation of what I was seeing every day. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I took the hike in 2020 uh, when there weren't that many other hikers on the trail. I mean, I would see several people every day, even on a, the slowest day. Um, but whenever I would stop and talk, um, or oftentimes when I would stop, stop and talk, the, uh, the subject would be about the conditions of the trail and we would talk about the rocks and, and often I would, you know, share whatever it was that I happened to know about the rocks that were in the local area. Um, so it was certainly a common point of discussion and it was something that was always on my mind. I know that, and maybe not everyone else, but, uh, um, but as far as giving me an advantage, I, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess maybe in some ways, um, but I would say more of an appreciation than the average person than an advantage. I'm, I'm sure uh, along the way, you saw some pretty amazing glacial and paraglacial features. Uh, oh, are there any that, uh, that stick out in your mind? Well, w- one thing that I'll say the way that I did my hike, um, I originally had planned to start from Georgia and finish in Maine, but because of my late start, that wasn't going to be possible because I would be, I would be getting, you know, into Maine about the time where they closed Baxter State Park for the season, and I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to make it in time. So what I did was what's known as a flip flop. So I went to Swatara Gap. I made it as far north as Swatara Gap, Pennsylvania. And then uh, from there, I flew to Bangor, Maine. And then I started my hike, um, you know, from north and, and, and headed south. So I actually finished in Swatara Gap in November. And oh, okay. After five and a half months of, um, of uh, hiking. But uh, as far as um, as far as notable examples of of uh, things that I saw that you know told the glacial history of an area, certainly all through New England, and I think what was maybe um, the most stark uh, reminder of that I was in a glacially transformed uh, part of the continent was when I took that initial flight from Swatara Gap to Maine and then began hiking south because everything changed. You know, suddenly, you know, I stopped in in Pennsylvania well below the effect of any glaciation. There was there were some paraglacial features, um, I believe, near Swatara Gap. I don't even remember if there if there were. I know that once you get Beyond that, there's there are quite a few, but um, but for the most part, you know, there's really no signs of of any glaciation 
or for me, there were no signs of any glaciation until I got to uh, Maine and started hiking south. And then, you know, even looking out the window of the plane, I mean, everything looked like it had been scoured by continental glaciers and it was smoothed over. And certainly the the type of forests were different. Um, and it just, it was like a whole nother world. And not to mention, I was, uh, I was now feeling like I was well into fall um, coming out of Pennsylvania in September. I mean, it, it was still summertime there. And I was in, I was in my warm sleeping bag at night. It was, you know, warm, warm days, warm evenings. And when I got to Maine, you know, suddenly the temperatures were dropping into the thirties at night, all of a sudden. And so it was, it was a huge change for many reasons. And, uh, and certainly the, you know, the, the climate was one and, and, then the type of rocks that I was walking on, I mean, everything was nicely scoured and smooth. And um, of course, different types of rocks were back into the metamorphics again. And, um, and so it was, it was a really interesting transition. What about uh, animal encounters? Did you encounter anything out of the ordinary along the way or anything noteworthy? Well, I, I had, I had a lot of animal encounters, but nothing, um, none of the, none of the animals that people like to talk about, <laughs> like <laughs> bears and beavers and uh, moose. And unfortunately, I, I really didn't see any of those three. Um, I, I knew that they were all around me. Um, I could see evidence for them. Um, as far as bears, um, there were a couple of camps at night where Bears did enter the camp, and I could hear them, but they didn't bother me. They didn't, you know, they didn't come up to my tent. And uh, the real key for not having bears bother you is to make sure that your food is hung from a tree at night so that the bears can't get to it and make sure that that's, I mean, there's a whole formula that you have to learn about um making sure that your food stays safe so that uh, it doesn't attract bears and, and so that the bears can't get to it if it if they happen to notice it by the, by the smell. Um, and I also didn't see any moose. Um, there was plenty of evidence for, for moose. Um, the droppings, of course, that's probably the number one thing. Um, you could see where they were uh, rubbing against trees here and there. Um, and then as far as beavers, there were lots of beaver dams. There were lots of uh, beaver lodges you could see in the water, but um, they're rather an, an elusive mammal. And uh, they it's rare that you, you see them from what I'm uh, led to understand. Um, I, I did see a lot of birds, a lot of hawks, eagles. Um, oh, speaking of uh, other animals related to food. I had an experience where, um, I believe this was in Pennsylvania, uh, one evening um, I was camping with another gentleman and um, I was hanging my food bag for the night and I remember calling over him and asking if he wanted to tie his bag onto my carabiner and I just hoist them up, them both up together. And he said, no, no, don't worry, I'll take care of my own. Well, after we both turned in, I was laying in my tent and I was reading and 
I started seeing um, these flashlights just flashing all over the place, and and it's uh, wondering, you know, what the heck's going on here? And then pretty soon, I, I hear this guy's voice, and he's he's yelling at something, and and this this went on all night, and it turned out that there were two porcupines that were <laughs> trying to get into his tent all night long, and it also turned out that his food bag was in his tent. <laughs> oh. so, so go figure, right? But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, animals, they, I mean, they, they'll, they'll take whatever food you, you offer them. And so it's important that you don't do that. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, many years ago at a, uh, a talk given by an expert on uh, bears in Pennsylvania for the Pennsylvania Game Commission, uh, he said, if you've been in the woods in Pennsylvania, you've been near a bear. Mm, absolutely. And if you saw a bear, it's because either the bear made a big mistake or the bear wanted you to see it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's probably true. So yeah. you were probably close to many bears along the way, but they just didn't want to be seen. Mm -hmm. But uh, no Sasquatch sightings, nothing like that? <laughs> uh, as far as I know, I didn't see any uh, Sasquatch. <laughs> Um, do you have any, any, uh, advice for other people that might want to hike the Appalachian trail now that you have it under your belt? Oh, I have a lot of advice. Um, but I'll just, I'll just give you a, a couple of things. Uh, one is I would definitely recommend, you know, for anybody my age or our age, um, uh, I would definitely recommend that you try to get in pretty good shape before you sit out to do this. Um, there's, there are plenty of how-to websites out there on YouTube or primarily on YouTube, I guess, um, where there are folks who have hiked the trail multiple times. They've done all, all different trails all over and, and they've got some really good advice on gear, how, just how to do different, uh, um, things having to do with your, your trip. So I would say definitely you could learn a lot from that. You can learn a lot from talking to someone like me, someone who's been through all of this. Um, I think it's important to have really good equipment. Uh, I know there's, I, I ran into a lot of people that had just, just as an example, and I, I won't drop names of, uh, of equipment, but I had a food bag that I paid about $50 for. I remember when I bought it, I thought, this is really expensive. I don't know if I want to, you know, spend that much for a food bag, but it's what you keep all of your food in and what you have to hang that, you have to hang your food bag every night. So it's got to take a lot of abuse. It's about 10 to 15 pounds worth of stuff inside of it. And um, it's inside of your pack all the time. So it, it gets a lot of abuse. And I can't tell you how many people I ran into that had cheap food bags and they were forever getting holes in them and the, the grommets were coming apart or, or just something about them. And, you know, ultimately they probably just had to, you know, buy another one. So anyway, just... Using that as an example, I would say that it's really important to have really good equipment. 
and um, and really good lightweight equipment. Um, every ounce turns into a pound eventually, and it it doesn't take long for all of that to add up. And uh, you know, I I started out with a much heavier pack in um, in the early weeks of my trip. And then I changed that out when I got to Damascus, Virginia. And I dropped four pounds just by getting a different pack. So, you know, that's significant. And, um, and the, uh, the type of clothing you pack, uh, I mean, everything, it just adds up and, and the weight builds up very quickly. So you learn to select um items um you know based on their their quality and their weight and uh you know last thing you want to do is have too much weight on your back for for every day because it just it takes a lot out of you and 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 makes your your life not quite as enjoyable for that time that's a, a that's a very good point. Um, you know, I, when when you say about having good equipment, I I think of you know good boots, good clothing, good sleeping bag, good pack. Never thought that much about the food bag, but you're absolutely right. That's you lose that food and you're you're in trouble. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and I could go on and you know talk about every every thing that I had in my, in my pack, but, uh, but really the quality is, is really important. So. Uh, are there any particularly memorable people that you met along the way that uh, you want to share with us or should we just wait and read the book? <laughs> <laughs> there were, there were way too of, much here. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of memorable people that I met. Um, I remember I met, um, I met a, a young lady, I think, in one of the last days of, of the trip. It was maybe in New Jersey. I guess it was in New Jersey. And she had just uh, run the New Jersey part of the AT and set the world record for the fastest known time. And she told me all about her trip and or all about her, uh, her run and um, about how you know, she ran day and night and, and she did this, this whole thing essentially unassisted. So she carried her own pack and um, it was only for, I believe, three and a half days, but it was something like 150 miles. So just a really impressive uh, athlete um, out on the trail. And, and I did run into some other um, fastest known time setters, I guess you could call them. Uh, there was there was a gentleman um, who had set the record for getting through Maine's hundred mile wilderness faster than anyone else, and I don't remember what the time was, but it was far fewer days <laughs> than it took me. I could tell you that. And and he had set the record, and then I think the next year somebody came along and they they beat him by fifty minutes or something like that. Um, but. What I what I remembered about him was that he had the same he he had the same trail shoes that I had used for my my second sort of my camp shoes at the time, and they were a pair of uh, ultras, and they were very lightweight. I, I really liked them, but I think for 
somebody with 64 year old feet like me um, they didn't provide quite the support that I needed but uh, but those were the those exact shoes that I had for my second pair um, that's what he had done his um, 100 mile wilderness um, fastest known time in well that's that's uh, rather impressive uh, to, to have a record like that but um, for me personally well, Personally, I, I never have to worry about breaking any of those records, but it seems to me that it rather defeats the purpose of being out there in the wilderness. And look around right, and right. enjoy it. But, I think what, what you'll find though is people who do who do uh, set those kinds of records, they've already hiked that same stretch three or four or five times. And so that's part of why they are able to do it so quickly because they know every inch of the trail so well. So they've already gone through that, you know, doing the trail and enjoying the ambiance of, you know, every second of every day. And, and I think, you know, they, they've just gotten to the point where they're, they're out to just, you know, set a record because they have the physical ability and, and the desire to do so. Well, that makes sense. So I must say, as I, I was reading through your book, uh, one of the things that kept rattling around in my head, and, and maybe I'm projecting this from one geologist to another, but how could you possibly walk through all that amazing geology and not pick up rocks and put them in? <laughs> because rocks are heavy. <laughs> I have noticed that over the years. Yeah, primarily. Uh, keep doing it anyway. <laughs> I mean, I, I did collect some hand samples from time to time. Um, if I would find something really interesting or if I'd find a little fossil of, of something, um, I might throw that in the bag. Um, but for the most part, I, I didn't, I didn't bring rocks with me. Uh, I didn't bring rocks back with me. Uh, there were a couple of times when toward the end, I was collecting what I, what I called my trail treasures for my grandson, Ezra. And I guess he was, I guess at the time he was four years old and um, and then my two-year-old grandson, his brother, Rowan, um, but Ezra was the one who was probably the most interested and um, uh, could appreciate it at, at his age. But I was just collecting all sorts of, you know, little rock samples and moss and mushrooms and ferns and pine cones, things that, you know, I, I would see along the trail and um, that I thought he might enjoy. So that, that worked out pretty well. I think he, he did appreciate some of the things that I brought along for him. But that's about the extent of, of carrying rocks in my bag, I have to say. <laughs> that's great. I know my, my granddaughter uh, loves when I bring her rocks uh, mm -hmm. from, uh, uh, well, just about from anywhere, but. Um, okay, well, the book is called Rocks, Roots, and Rattlesnakes. It is uh, coming out, correct me if I'm wrong, March 1st, 2022. Is that correct? Uh, that's, that's our target date. In fact, I just had a talk with the um, representative with the group that I'm uh, having this published with. And um, it's looking like we should be on on track to have a March 1st release date. Yeah. Okay. 
it is an excellent contribution, an excellent read. I highly recommend it to everybody. And uh, Craig, I want to thank you for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. And, um, I, you know, and I would encourage anybody who's ever thought about taking a trip like this um, to, you know, get yourself trained and uh, in shape and just go out and do it. You know, take some time off. And it's, it's a trip of a lifetime, whether it's the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or, you know, any of the dozens of others that are all over North America. And, um, and there's, there's just things that you won't even, that you won't even expect that you'll take back with you in terms of, uh, you know, changes to how you see the world and perspective on things. Excellent advice. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists. A special thanks to Cheyenne DeLawrence for our introduction. I'm your host, Russ Losco. Please tune in again for future podcasts from PCPG.